All right, so if you were here last week, you know that we started a new series on the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a tough little book. Uh, It's a book that many people are surprised to discover is in their Bibles. You might have been reading your Bible for years, never come across Ecclesiastes, never heard a sermon on it, and then you stumble on it and you're like, whoa, what is this? Uh, Case in point, it leads with these words, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And uh, there's gems like this one, so I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But as depressing as this book may sound, it is not an accident that it's in our Bibles. This is a perspective that God wants us to hear. And part of that perspective that we talked about last week is this idea that the physical world that we inhabit cannot satisfy our heart's longing. This world is not enough for us. We long for something more. And the way I described it last week is that all of us have this holy ache inside of us. Ecclesiastes is designed to provoke this holy ache, this ache for God, an ache for something eternal and lasting. The teacher of Ecclesiastes describes himself as looking for satisfaction and meaning in so many of the same places that we do, uh, in trying to gain wisdom and knowledge, in having fun, in pursuing goals, in acquiring wealth. (coughs) And he's been successful at all of these things. Uh, By ancient Near Eastern standards, he's lived a very privileged life, a life with a lot of things to enjoy. Uh, He's a king. But as he looks back on his life, he describes all of it as a chasing after the wind. In other words, if you chase after the wind, what do you have to show for it? You know, is there something that you can hold in in your hand and say, look at what I caught? Well, no. Right? And, and as the, the teacher looks back on his whole life, this is what he feels about all of his attempts, all of his activities, all of his, 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 uh, his, his work to gain meaning and satisfaction and significance. All of it is this chasing after the wind. It's, it's fruitless. Now, this week we're going to look at some more of the teacher's observations, and I have to warn you, his tone is going to remain consistent. Uh, so ready yourself for that. These are harsh observations but there's wisdom here that we need to wrestle with. So if you have a Bible, open up to chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, as you find your way there, I will say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you now, and we probably all have a bunch of things on our minds. Um, Our lives are busy, and There's a lot of things that distract us, and I just pray that for the rest of this morning, Lord, you would help us to to put those things aside and just give our attention, give our mind uh, to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear what it is that you want us to learn uh, this morning from this tough book. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because it's his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I, de I declared that the dead, <clears throat> who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Whew, right? And you thought last week was a downer, right? <laughs> this one might even be tougher. Now what we have in this passage are three observations about the nature of life. And these observations are also problems for each one of us. In fact, I would say that these observations have power in them to either lead us to despair or to lead us to God, one or the other. And I'm hoping that they will all inspire in us the holy ache that leads us to God, to turn from our idols and turn to him. So what are these observations? Okay, observation number one about the nature of life, life is incomprehensible. Life is incomprehensible. 
Now, the key verse that I have in mind here is 3.11, which says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We cannot fathom, in other words, we cannot comprehend the big picture of what God is doing. Here's a metaphor that might help to illustrate this verse. If you think of all of history like a tapestry that God is weaving, then every life and the events of every life are like threads in that tapestry. And what this verse tells us is that God is weaving all the threads together into a beautiful tapestry, right? He has made everything beautiful in its time. And because we have eternity in our hearts, we're not content to just know about our little thread in the tapestry in any given moment. We want to see the whole tapestry, right? And we want to know how our thread in the tapestry is woven throughout the whole thing and the place that it, that it plays in the whole thing. But we can't see the whole thing. We can't see the whole tapestry. Our perspective is limited. We cannot fathom, we cannot comprehend what God is doing from beginning to end. I remember when I was in seminary and I took the preaching classes, one of the things that they would say over and over again is that if you are going to have a good sermon, you have to have unity, order, and progress. Unity, order, and progress. Those are key ingredients not only in every good sermon, but in every good speech. If you come to hear a talk and it's just this disjointed series of ideas that have no clear theme or point, you're not going to come away from it thinking, oh, that was great. You know, you're going to feel like you wasted your time. Our brains crave unity, order, and progress. And just as our brains crave those things when we're listening to a speech, we also crave those things when we are reflecting on our life and on history. We want to look at our lives and feel like we see a story that has unity, order, and progress. We want to feel like there's a point to life and like all of our striving and our toil is working towards that point. Unity, order, and progress. But guess what? Life often lacks a sense of unity, order, and progress, right? It's rarely neat and organized. Uh, things happen that seem random and senseless. Uh, if, you, if you take a screenplay writing class, they say everything that you put, every line of dialogue in that screenplay has to mean something. It has to contribute to the whole. But life has all these subplots that never go anywhere, right? You know, things, things get set up and then they don't seem to pay off. Uh, you can get a job that you wanted and prayed for for years and then a month later you get laid off. Where's the unity order, order and progress in that, right? You can go to school and, uh, for a degree and spend tons of money and go into debt to, to get that degree and then never end up working in that field that your degree's in. Happens to a lot of people. You know, you can get married expecting to live your entire lives with the person that you commit yourself to and then you can suddenly find yourself with a terminal illness, you know, a month into marriage. Uh, you can spend your life acquiring knowledge, and you can, you can have noble goals in doing that. You can think, I'm going to bless the world with the knowledge that I'm acquiring, but then you could spend the last 10 years of your life losing it all to dementia. 
right? These things happen. And, and if we crave and expect unity, order, and progress in our lives, when these things happen, we go, why? What's going on? And the teacher's answer is, you can't really know. Because we cannot fathom what God is doing from beginning to end. Okay, from our perspective, it's incomprehensible. At the beginning of chapter 3, there's a poem about how there's a time for everything. And some of you may have recognized these lyrics uh, because they were made into a very popular song in the 60s by a group called The Birds, uh, a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. I really like that song. Um, great source material, right? Now, many people think that the purpose of this poem here is to say something pretty and nice. You know, that there are seasons in life, and, and as we move through those seasons, each one has its own beauty and goodness to it. And there is truth to that idea. I, I don't want to deny that. But I don't think that's really the main idea that the teacher is trying to get across through this poem. That would be unusually positive for the teacher, right? <laughs> Instead, I think we're supposed to hear a sadness in this poem. In fact, I think if the teacher were to give this poem a title, he would call it something like, we never make any progress. And if you don't believe me, remember the first thing that the teacher said after the poem, right? In verse 9, he says, what does the worker gain from his toil? In other words, what do we gain from everything that I just described? From the planting and the uprooting, and the war, and the, and the peace, and the tearing down, and building up, and weeping, and laughing. See, each line, it's kind of like it says, there's a time for adding one, and a time for subtracting one. A time for plus one, a time for minus one, right? A time to build, that's plus one, and a time to tear down, that's minus one. And the teacher is thinking, well, plus one, minus one, plus one, minus one, what's your net outcome? Zero. Right? So he's saying, what do we gain from all this? See, he craves a sense of progress, right? But he doesn't see progress in life. He just sees this oscillation back and forth, back and forth between different poles at different times. Plant, uproot. Build, tear down. War, peace. Make the bed, mess the bed up. Wash the dishes, Make the dishes dirty, right? Be born, die. Where's the progress? So we crave order, unity, and progress, but we don't always see it when we look at our lives. Something is going on that's incomprehensible, but, okay, I don't want to leave us here. <laughs> we should not despair. Right? Because remember, the teacher says he has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, even though we cannot understand what's happening, God is weaving this tapestry, and the tapestry is beautiful. So don't choose despair. 
Choose faith. Faith is the position that says, I cannot fathom everything that is going on. I cannot understand how all the puzzle pieces fit. I don't always see order and unity and progress in this world around me. But I'm trusting that even though I can't get it, that God is weaving something beautiful. Now, Ecclesiastes hints that we should have this kind of faith. But the New Testament proclaims it boldly. Okay. For example, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If we have faith in Christ, we can have confidence that in all things, even things that seem to destroy unity and order and progress in our lives, God is at work for our good. He is weaving something together that's beautiful. Now, this raises the question, if your brain thinks like mine, well, does that mean that every single thing that happens to us is actually a good thing? Everything? Like, let's say tomorrow you find out your spouse has cheated on you. Would it be correct for you to think, well, God arranged for my spouse to cheat on me because it's for my good, because God works for my good through all things? And my answer to that question is no. Okay, If your spouse cheats on you, that is a sin, and God does not lead us to sin. The promise of Romans 8.28 is not a promise that everything that happens in your life is something that pleases God. But the promise is this. The promise is that whatever happens to you, God is at work in your life to bring good out of that. Do you see the difference there? God is not the author of evil, but God works to transform evil and to squeeze good out of it. He works so that we don't just stay stuck in the evil. And he works to help us become more like Jesus and to deepen our character and our faith, whatever we're going through. Here's one way to think about the way that God works in our lives. In the 80s and early 90s, there was this TV show called The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. There he is, you might recognize him, middle-aged white guy with a fro hairstyle. And as Bob was painting, sometimes he would make a mistake. And his catchphrase was, we don't make mistakes, we just have happy accidents. And rather than throwing out the painting or getting angry and cursing, you know, he, what he would do is he would take this smudge, this accident, and then he would turn it into a brook or a tree or an animal, you know, whatever was fitting to the painting. And what was neat was sometimes those smudges would end up becoming the best parts of the painting. That's why he would say we have happy accidents. Now, the, the analogy is not entirely perfect, right, because God doesn't make mistakes, but we do. And this world often smudges the painting of our life, right? We, we, we think we have a painting that has order and unity and progress, and then something comes along and, and messes it up. And what Romans 8.28 tells us is that God, like Bob Ross, is at work to bring something good out of that smudge, out of that mistake. And faith is the attitude that says, I'm going to trust that when all is said and done, God will have made the painting of my life and the painting of all of history into something beautiful. 
In fact, into something so beautiful that I will say, you know what, I, I guess the smudges were actually worth it. Okay, that's observation number one. Observation number two, life is unjust. Life is unjust. Chapter 3, verse 16, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. In chapter 4, verse 1, Again I looked, and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. Here is an observation that we all need to hear. The world is not fair. Sometimes people do terrible things and they get away with it. And sometimes people are innocent and they get sent to jail. You know that saying, cheaters never prosper? Not entirely true, right? Sometimes they do. And it's so important for us to realize this, that the world is unfair, because if we don't, we actually make the world an even harder place to be in. Uh, for example, if we have this underlying assumption that the world is fundamentally just, then if something bad happens to us, what do we do? Well, we automatically assume, I must have done something wrong, right? God must be punishing me. And yeah, sometimes bad things happen to us because we make bad choices. But sometimes, the world is just unfair. Sometimes, we are just victims of injustice. And it's not our fault. It's just life under the sun, right? So we have to be careful, because if we assume that the world is this just place, then whenever something bad happens to us, we're going to carry this unnecessary burden of shame and responsibility that just makes it even harder, and that's the last thing that we need. Another problem with assuming that the world is just is that when we see other people suffering, we assume they must have done something wrong. You know, if a, if a tornado comes and tears apart a town, we start coming up with justifications, God must be upset with them. They must have all voted for the wrong guy, you know, something like that. But what the teacher is reminding us is this is just not the way the world works. The assumption that the world is fundamentally a just place is another reason why racism gets perpetuated. Uh, because when we believe that the world is just, we assume, well, if a people group is disadvantaged, it must be because something's wrong with them, right? They must have done something to, to deserve it. They must be lazy or they must be especially sinful. But the teacher says no. The teacher says that some people are oppressed. Why? Because power was on the side of the oppressors. Because the world isn't always just. And then another danger in assuming that the world is fundamentally just is that when good things happen to us, we automatically assume that we deserve them, right? And if we're successful and privileged, then that can make us very arrogant. And rather than feeling gratitude, we can start to feel entitled, you know? I deserve all this because I'm better than everybody else. God blesses me with riches because I'm a good person. But the teacher says, you can't think that way. 
The world isn't fair. I want us to notice how seriously the teacher takes the problem of injustice. He doesn't minimize the suffering of the world at all. I mean, some of you might have been shocked by verses 2 and 3. I know the first time I read them, I was, I was shocked by them. The teacher considers the plight of the oppressed, and then he thinks, you know, their lives are so characterized by suffering that it seems like it would be a mercy for them to be dead. It would be better for them to be dead. And then he, he takes it even a step further and he says, actually, it would have been better if they never had been born because then they wouldn't have to experience all this oppression and suffering. Now, that sounds extraordinarily negative, right? But there's a wisdom here that I want us to recognize, that I want us to hear, so bear with me, okay? Remember, the teacher is talking about life under the sun, we talked last week about how that phrase comes up over and over again, life under the sun. And he uses that phrase again at the start of this passage in verse 4. I, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. And what is the significance of that phrase? The significance is that the teacher is saying, I'm looking at the physical world. Okay? Not the heavenly world, the world under heaven, the under the sun world. Now, I'm not looking at the spiritual world. I'm looking at the world that I can just see with my eyes. And when he, he looks at the, the physical world and he observes it honestly, he's, he, he recognizes that if there is nothing more than what is under the sun, then many lives don't seem worth living, right? Because some lives are just so full of pain and grief and abuse without any justice, that it does seem like it would be better a mercy for those people if they never had to go through that. And, and so here's the wisdom here, okay? If all that exists is what is under the sun, then what is life? It is a journey from non-existence to non-existence. And if that journey is primarily nothing but pain, suffering, and injustice, that, this is the wisdom. He's saying, wouldn't it be better just not to exist? Now, I want to be very clear. Every life that has ever been lived is worth living. But that's because there's more that exists than just what is under the sun. Because there's more than just the physical world. But if all that existed is what's under the sun, what we can see, well, then I'm not so sure about that. Right? So once again, Ecclesiastes, it prods us to either despair or to God. Because we can despair and we can say, oh, life under the sun is not worth living. Or we can say this, we can say, I believe that there's more to reality than what I can see. And I believe that part of what I cannot see is that there is a good God who one day will judge the world. And he will execute that justice perfectly. Right? That is a theme that comes up over and over again throughout the scriptures, that a judgment day is coming. Uh, God is very slow in bringing it, and he tells us why. It's because he is not willing that anyone should perish. He wants everyone to turn to him and repent. But a judgment day will come. The world is not just right now. The under-the-sun world is not okay. It's not fair. But one day... God will make it right. I think a lot of us, 
in our culture today are uncomfortable with the idea of a judgment day and a God who judges, but Ecclesiastes should remind us (laughs) we need a judgment day. We need the hope of judgment. Because without judgment day, the world is unjust, and that's just always the way that it's going to be, right? Cheaters prosper, innocents suffer, power is on the side of the oppressors, and that's just that. We need a hope that a day is coming when God will set things right. And the Bible calls us to trust that that day will come. And then, finally, one more observation about the nature of life. Life is impermanent. Life is impermanent. Now, another surprising passage uh, that we looked at is this part where the teacher says, if you look at human beings, we don't seem to have any advantage over animals. Right? They die. We die too. Uh, Their bodies decompose into dust. Same thing happens with us. And the teacher asks this question. He says, well, who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down uh, into the earth? Now, you might ask, is the Bible teaching here that we can't be sure if there's an afterlife? That can't be right, right? Well, this is why it's very important for us to read every book in the Bible in context of the whole, okay? It's, it's, it's dangerous to just take one little piece of the Bible from one part, not think about what part it is in the story, and then derive too much from it, okay? If we take the Bible as a whole, there's no question. It absolutely teaches that there is an afterlife. But this particular book, the book of Ecclesiastes, was written during a time when God had not revealed a lot about what happens after death. Uh, If you read the Old Testament, you'll notice that that's not a subject that's actually talked about a lot. Uh, Most of what God said to the Jews had to do with how do you live as a righteous person in this life, here and now. So we have to situate Ecclesiastes in context, and then also remember he is observing and talking about the the under-the-sun world in what he sees there. So the teacher of Ecclesiastes is having what I would call God-inspired thoughts. God-inspired thoughts. But they are in response to a limited amount of revelation that he has right now. And he's realizing, with these God-inspired thoughts, you know, we human beings, we have this terrible problem. We strain and we toil and strive and many of us suffer terrible injustice and we long for eternity and a sense of permanence and lasting significance, but everyone's story ends the same, with death. One way I'd put it is the book of Ecclesiastes is somebody realizing we need the hope of resurrection. We need it, right? Without the hope of resurrection, life is meaningless. Without the hope of resurrection, nothing lasts. Everything is vapor. You know, the fate of all is the same, the just and the wickedness. Everybody gets the same thing, nothingness. Without the hope of resurrection, the longing in our hearts, this holy ache that we all have, it can never be satisfied. But praise God 
the New Testament teaches that Jesus came and he conquered death, right? He conquered this vile force that makes life this meaningless chasing after the wind, trying to grab onto something that we can never grab onto. And I like to think that if the teacher of Ecclesiastes had been alive during Jesus' ministry, and if he had seen him after the resurrection, he would have said something like, I can't believe it. Everything under the sun is vapor, but you aren't vapor. Right? You must not be from under the sun. You must be from heaven. And then I like to think that Jesus would say, well, and you know what? Because of what I've done, you don't have to be vapor either. And maybe he would tell him what he said to Mary in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, we have to remember, Ecclesiastes is not the whole story. And it's definitely not the end of the story. But it does point us to the end of the story. Because it reminds us of our need for Jesus. And it helps us to realize that Jesus is the answer to the deep existential questions and problems that we face. Ecclesiastes is like, here they are. <laughs> let's, let's be totally honest about the problem we're in, right? So that when we see Jesus, we realize, oh, yes, this is what we need. So again, three harsh observations about the nature of life. Life is un incomprehensible, life is unjust, and life is impermanent. But we don't need to despair, right? Life may be incomprehensible, but we need to have faith that God is weaving together a beautiful tapestry. Life may be unjust right now, but a judgment day is coming when God will set things right. And, and, and life may appear impermanent right now, but Jesus has defeated death, and through him, death does not have to defeat us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at some point all of us feel uh, the weight of living in a world that is harsh. At some point we we realize uh, these things about the nature of life. It's not always comprehensible. It's not always just, and it is impermanent. And God, I pray that those realizations would never lead any of us to despair, but that they would lead us to you. God, I pray that we would recognize in your son, Jesus Christ, the answer to these problems, these harsh problems of existence. And I pray that we would experience the life and the joy that you offer here and now in this under-the-sun world. In Jesus' name, amen.